You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. We are living in strange times right now in the arts more than anybody else as well as all sporting events. But I mean, there are no real arts events going on right now. But we are still going to bring you the show, even though one of the events we're going to talk about isn't happening. But the play is still awesome. The actors have worked so hard for it. The director has directed. So we're just going to go on because nothing is cancelled. Things are just hopefully postponed. So this week's show is all about strong women, some historical, some fictional, and at least one Glamazonian. Later in the show, America's favourite Tupperware lady and Alabama's prettiest girl, Dixie Longgate, will be dropping by to talk about her show, Dixie's Tupperware Party, that is on in Jefferson City this weekend. But first, we're going to go back to France in the late 18th century, when a lot of people were losing their heads. Literally. The period after the French Revolution is known as the Reign of Terror, a roughly 18-month period between early 1793 and July 1794. It was a time characterised by a rejection of religious authority and the corrupt influence of the aristocracy and the clergy. To deal with all the offenders of the old order, a revolutionary court was set up for the trial of political offenders and, needless to say, they saw treason at every turn. They declared that terror was the order of the day, cited public criticism as a treasonable offence and lopped the heads off an estimated 17,000 people. Plus, they let 10,000 people die in prison without a trial. It was not a good time to be an ex-queen, a member of the political opposition, a freedom fighter for civil rights, or even a playwright. But America's most produced playwright, Lauren Gunderson, imagined them all hanging out together, and the result is a hilarious play called The Revolutionists, featuring Marie Antoinette, the assassin Charlotte Corday, the playwright Olympe de Gouges, and Marianne Angel, a fictional character based on the national symbol of the French Republic. And it would have been at Stevens College this weekend, but it isn't. It's postponed, hopefully until maybe April. But that said, I am delighted to welcome to the studio its director, Elizabeth Broughton Palmieri, and two of the actors, Fiona Blue and Julia Volo. Welcome to the show, ladies, and thank you for being here. Thank you, Diana. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So this is such a hilarious play, and it is perfect for Stephen's women, um, except for the head-losing bit. Not so perfect. <laughs> Elizabeth, set the scene for us. Where are we, and how are we introduced to each of the characters? Yeah, so, um, so it begins. Uh, we are in the hotbed of the Reign of Terror in France, like you said, in Paris, France. And the lights come up on Olympe de Gouges. She's a female feminist, whether or not she knew she was feminist at the time, mm-hmm. playwright. And uh, she is uh, currently working on a piece. And so we kind of see her writing come to life. The lights come up. We hear the humming of the other ladies. And then a guillotine, uh, shocking lighting, and of course she stops herself in her tracks and stands, and the lights go out, and we're in reality with her, and she decides that, you know, it's not a way to start a comedy with a guillotine. All right. <laughs> so um, we're kind of immediately like thrust into the fact that this this piece is um, going to play with you know reality and also bring these very historical women into contemporary times with their um, with their vernacular, their their swearing, <laughs> like everything about it, and it's. Um, yeah, it's that. That's kind of the, the setting the stage, and I chose to um, have all of the women uh, begin on the stage with her. So the women, uh, Olympe is you know down front facing us, and the other three are up on the scaffold facing away with their backs to us. And uh, 
I, I love doing that. I, it's a very Brechtian approach to theater um, to put all the players on stage and, and have the audience kind of guessing and, and, you know, it's a different kind of... Um, it's it's a different kind of uh, emotion, you know, the energy that is that is created versus then just the anticipation of you know waiting for someone to come on stage. It's like they're there, and now it's like you know, but their backs are to us, and we can see them, and and we're kind of creating who they are before we get to actually meet them. So they stay on stage the whole time. <laughs> Um, yeah, they start on stage, and then you know, in the second act, there's some in, ins and outs as as the urgency picks up, and there's uh, a little bit more turmoil taking place. But yes, it was important for me to start with all of them on stage together. So, ladies, when you are not acting, when you're not speaking, like, how are you m- mentally on the stage? I mean, you are you obviously you're listening to what's going on, so you know when your cues are. How do you stay engaged when you've got your back to the audience and you're just waiting for your cue, Fiona? Well, Fiona's talking the whole time. Uh, (laughs) Oh, because you are a limp. Okay, so yes, Julia. Um, Yeah, actually, I'm the one who has my back to the audience for the longest. Uh Um, And for me, it's just exciting because I don't get to see what's going on. And so it's all auditory and I get to hear, I can hear the energy in their voices. And like every time one of them goes in and enters, it's like more excitement. And it's really fun for me to hear everything that they're doing and setting it up so that when I get to come join, I'm so excited to just jump in and like play with them, you know? Um, So I do think that like starting on stage keeps us really energized and excited for when we do get to turn around. And so when you exit from your moment, do you go back and stand in the same place and turn your back to the audience again, or do you leave the stage at that point? They leave the stage. They, okay. But really, the scenes are... Um, there are some duet scenes, but um, the girls really don't have much downtime. You know, mm. And when we get to the second act, it's in, in and out, in and out. And... Um, I mean, the dialogue is, it just, it goes, goes, goes. This is a talk-heavy play, um, which is very different for me, you know what I mean? I mean, I do a lot of, like, classical theater, too, but a lot of my shows are are usually incredibly physical, and Mm. so... um, what I wanted to do is is make sure I punched my vision of physicality into this piece that was talk heavy, right? So, um, so I, you know, told the women, you know, in rehearsals a lot, it's how important it was, you know, to bring their athleticism to the role. And I would say that Charlotte Corday, um, who Ella, who plays her, cannot be here this morning, but she definitely, I, she has to push herself the most physically, which you know you haven't seen this but um you know and and she's in great shape so she can do it but she is you know exhausted at the end of certain scenes because not only do you have to physically do something but then you have to actually speak as well you know what i mean and i love that kind of energy i love the energy that physical exhaustion pushes into your words because to me it just makes it more real i can feel the energy i can feel the terror i can feel the excitement you know Stuff like that. Just as a tangent and staying on that subject, I sat in on your class the other day and you were talking about what you make your actors do before they start rehearsal. So you make them run around the room <laughs> and then stop and speak their line. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I was talking about in my company with Greenhouse, uh, one of the exercises that we do is I'll have them for maybe like 20, 25 minutes. They have to run, stop, deliver a monologue from the piece that we're doing, do a burpee, get back up, run, stop, do their monologue, do a burpee, get back up. And we just do that consistently for 20 minutes to the point where, you know, they're physically exhausted by the end of it. But the idea is that that's kind of, in in essence, the feeling of a show. You know, it's like you're running a marathon and you're trying to get to the end of this this story, you know, and the, the urgency has to be there. And I think that that's something that is lost a lot in storytelling is the urgency. And that's really just something that the actors themselves have to be able to have and know what that is. Pa- you know, sometimes people call it pacing. I call it urgency. Mm-hmm. It's what keeps things moving. And especially in this show, I mean, our heads 
are on the line. So we're racing towards that inevitable end for all of us. So it's definitely important to keep that pacing up and that urgency and that uh, physical presence. And it is such a fast-paced play. Like you said, verbally, there is so much back and forth between everybody. And so it has a natural fast pace, mm-hmm. e- even without that you know, impending doom at the end of it. Mm-hmm. It's going to go quickly. Now, I have to confess, I'd never heard of Charlotte Corday or Olympia de Gouges. Um, and it makes you wonder how many more substantial women from history have exactly. been marginalized by male writers. So Fiona, you are playing Olympe. How do you pronounce her name? Olympe. Um, yes, o- Olympe is how we're, we're doing it in the play. I think if you were truly speaking French, you'd say Olympe de Gouges. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but considering we're all speaking English, it uh, sounds better for Olympe. Well, tell us, give us a potted history of Olympe de Gouges and who she was. Um, so I, I didn't even know who she was before this play and before researching her. And she really was a, a pioneer in women's rights activism. Um, she was a huge proponent for having equal rights. One of her biggest and prolific works was a Declaration for the Rights of Woman and the Female Citizen, um, which basically just listed articles of demanding equal rights for women, which is, is so important and so overlooked, I think, in history. I wish I would have learned about her. Um, before now, yeah. Um, yeah. but she basically, you know, fought on all fronts. She made uh, pamphlets and posters uh, that she posted in the streets of Paris. She was constantly fighting against corruption, uh, politically and socially, um, and she was just a, an, an iconic figure, I, I believe, in women's history, and I think it's important to share her story as well as the other three women's in the show story. Uh, Marie Antoinette and um, Charlotte Corday and Mer- Marianne Angel, although she's a fictional character, she has such a voice of reason in this show and she's a very important character um, for all of the women. Mm-hmm. And Julia, you play Marie Antoinette, which I'm, I'm guessing, who I'm guessing most people have heard of, but tell us some things about her that maybe people don't know, because she may have been misjudged by history a little bit. Um, yeah, so I had a lot of fun with my research in her. Um, she something that's really interesting is when the revolution really started to pick up um louis didn't know what to do he kind of froze in the situation and so marie antoinette made a lot of the political decisions for him um and kind of just slid over what he should do to him um and i think that that's really important to uh, her character and her as a woman in this time of history. Um, because, you know, pop culture shows the frivolous, um, mm-hmm. extravagant side of her all the time. And, you know, the let them eat cake, which isn't a real quote of hers, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so actually getting to see her as a real person um, and try to understand her perspective on the revolution and her own life and how her upbringing and all the decisions made for her as a child led her to the decisions that she made during this revolution. Lauren Gunderson describes her Marie Antoinette as less badass, more but fascinating former Queen of France, bubbly, graceful, opinionated, (laughs) totally unaware, unintentionally rude and oddly prescient. Never had a real friend. (laughs) Yeah. I'd say that's pretty accurate. Yeah, yeah. So that rings true from your research. Yeah. Okay. And yet at the same time, I think Gunderson is able to just the lines that she has given Marie, she is able to extract this um, this empathy from her. And maybe that's an unaware empathy. And then in turn, we empathize with her. You know, she speaks of, you know, you try having a, a baby in a room with, mm-hmm. you know, tons of people watching you and and she does talk about having to make these decisions and the fact that she was thrust into a position you know when she was a child that that really you know what I mean she she didn't know what to do or or she kind of had to learn on the fly Mm -hmm. and so I think that through that storytelling you you have a different um view of Marie Antoinette and and the other women do too because I think the other women view her immediately when she enters as like yeah right you know what I mean um and and they take Take her on and they all form you know a unit together and, and they're empowered by their friendship as opposed to putting each other down 
Tell us a little bit about the other two women in the play. You have Charlotte Corday, the assassin, and then the fictional character, Marianne Angel. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about those two. Yeah, Marianne is, uh, what, the first time I read the piece, I was just immediately saw her as like the mother of the group. You know, she's kind of this grounded woman who kind of um, takes care of everyone. She definitely, you know, has her edge and um, she's a spy, <laughs> which is pretty mm -hmm. badass. Uh, but, you know, she's also a mother and she's had to, ch she has made the choice to leave her family, her children and her husband to pursue this position because it's important for the revolution, because she believes in abolishing slavery. She believes, you know, that women, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and her people deserve equality, you know what I mean? And so there's something that is really, uh, it's just in so intriguing about her, but I feel like anytime she has a duet scene with any of the other ladies, it's always kind of her consoling someone else until she finally is allowed to have kind of the breakdown, um, rightfully so, because she gets some very tragic information. And it's almost like everyone else doesn't know how to comfort her because she's always been the one to comfort everyone else. And so it's like, oh no, what happens when like mom breaks? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? What do we do? Um, so I, I really love Marianne's um, groundedness. She has, she's just full of soul. And um, and then Charlotte Corday, wow. She, I mean, yeah. it's so great. She is the youngest, you know. Technically, she's mm -hmm. the youngest character in in the in the group, and and she has this feisty kind of crazy energy. You know, she's the one who would be like at the front of, at the front of a picket line or like rioting. You know what I mean? Like she's she's the one that would throw her body in front of. You know what I mean? Like she's she's just kind of this wild animal. And I think that I love so. much much the energy the four different energies that the four women have because I feel personally like I have there's a part of me in each of these women you know what I mean like I'm definitely a Charlotte Corday sometimes you know whether or not I want to be it comes out you know I'm definitely Olympe the writer the visionary you know the person who sometimes is not living in reality um, I'm definitely like you know out of sorts like Marie and mis misinterpreted and and then I'm the mother, like, you know, Marianne. And I think that, you know, when women get to see a story like this, my, my hope is that they do see themselves in each of these women and they're able to connect. Fiona, can you talk to that a little bit about where you connect with the characters? I mean, you're at a different stage of your life uh, than Elizabeth, but what, what do you see in them? Um, definitely. I think there is one thing that, that rings throughout this piece for me personally is the concept of artistic responsibility. Um, there's a moment where there's a duet scene with Marianne and myself where she is talking to me about the privilege I have to share stories through writing. And I resonate with that a lot. I feel like the whole reason that I am a theater major is to share people's stories and to get people to empathize. Um, so throughout this entire piece, I'm just thinking about the story that I'm sharing of these women and that I'm, I'm writing their history down to enact change for history in the future. I think Olympe is a very progressive character, and I think that I am also a progressive person in my mind. So that's how I really connect, yeah. Julia, I mean, you're playing an ex-queen, so it's hard to have a connection there. But I mean, with the other characters you interact with, who do you bond with the most? Um, in the show, uh, Marie definitely finds uh, her connection with Marianne as well. Um, they are both mothers, and that's something that the other two characters don't really understand and can... Olympe uh, does have Olympe oh, does well, have a son, but she totally is MIA from yeah. that situation. But yes, um, but yeah, there are a couple really tender scenes between Marianne and Marie, um, where they each take a turn comforting each other mm -hmm. um, when they are finally allowed to divulge how terrible things have been for them, mm -hmm. um, and that other people just don't understand and like. You know, it, they have a really great connection, and I think that rings true for the connection that, you know, people need in their lives every day, and especially when things are going awry, mm -hmm. um, you need to find that connection with people, and mm -hmm. it's so important. Mm -hmm. um, in real life, Olympe de Gouges' son, right after she was beheaded, he was in the army, I believe, and he disowned his mother. 
that was the that was the relationship that they had. That is true. Yeah. Yes, he was removed from his position as soon as she was beheaded. Yes, Charlotte Corday uh, was a, was a, like I say, it was a real assassin. Mm-hmm. She yeah. murdered a journalist mm-hmm. called Jean Paul Marat. Mm-hmm. Um, she murdered him in his bathtub in cold his blood bathtub. with a long knife. <laughs> yes, I mean it's so. It's so perfectly fit for drama. You know what I mean? Like, it's like she could not have done that any better. So, yeah. But that scene is not in the play. It's... Oh, that scene is in the play. <laughs> oh, it is. It is. You have we, someone in a We bathtub. have a bathtub and everything. Mm. <laughs> that is just such a dramatic scene. Yeah. Uh, Julia, every now and again, uh, the playwright has Marie Antoinette saying something really profound or prescient. <laughs> yeah. She seems like this kind of ditzy person interested in bows on teacups. But... Uh, <laughs> And again, she says really amazing things. Talk a little bit about those lines that you have. Uh, yeah, so uh, one of my favorite lines that I sometimes just say out loud for no reason. Um, let's see what I'm trying to think of how it starts. Um, yeah, we may not know the rightness of our revolutions nor the heroes of our stories for generations to come. Um, and she just spits out these profound lines at random points <laughs> and um i think most people say or have really profound thoughts every once in a while and you know she just nobody understands that she has those and mm-hmm. she gets to spit them out and they're so random but they're so powerful mm-hmm. um and they're those moments where you have to stop and think oh my gosh that's true and it's really interesting to see how that can change your perspective in an instant. Olympe de Gouge, pretty recently in the 20 teens, um, somebody suggested that she be put in the pantheon, this you know great history of France, this museum where the, the great French people, they have a bust in there and they're talked about. And so somebody suggested that she should be put in there and she was rejected. She was rejected. I know I, I heard that on a podcast oh, and I was like livid no. when I heard that. Yeah, she wasn't important enough. She got her bust put somewhere else. But it does seem like she is such a <laughs> such an extraordinary in character. Yeah. Yeah. It was in a, I think it was in a museum. But it wasn't in the Pantheon, this place for great French people to be. She does seem like somebody we should all know about. And I'm wondering if, Elizabeth, you see in her, as a playwright Mm -hmm. yourself, Mm -hmm. a Greenhouse Theatre original production in the future featuring Olympia de Gouges. Featuring her or featuring one of her works? No, featuring about her. Oh, about her? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know how I I work. It's like I get tipped off on on whether it's, you know, an artist or just some obscure, usually women that I'm, you know, attracted to. And, uh, yeah, Olympe is definitely one of those characters, one of those people, one of those women in history that, you know, as I cracked open... Um, you know, more and more information about her via podcasts and, you know, just different articles. First of all, I was incredibly embarrassed being, um, you know, someone in the theater, but also a playwright, mm-hmm. a female, um, who did not know of her before now. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, once I kind of got past that shame, I mm-hmm. um, just started doing more and more, you know, research about her. And yeah, I, I totally, I totally love these these kinds of women who uh, she was doing really wonderful things but she was complex and she was kind of a mess you know what i mean and um and that that is what makes a good story you know if she was just sitting in her in her study writing you know beautiful declarations and you know never harmed anyone that'd be great but the fact is is that she did uh you know kind of choose the theater over raising her child and she did choose you know a lot of, <laughs> she made a lot of like questionable decisions i guess but and she lost her head for it you know inevitably but she also um was passionate you know what i mean and she was fighting for for her people and her country and i think that you know that is something that we should focus on she lost her head as a playwright because she had written a play that um, it didn't really promote the monarchy as in the old regime, but it promoted a constitutional monarchy. And mm-hmm. the people who were running the country during the reign of terror were Republican, uh, absolute mm-hmm. Republicans, and you and brokered no dissent. Mm-hmm. So the play wasn't ever produced, but papers were seized at her house, right. and she was put before the tribunal, and they found her guilty. Right. And she's also kind of a rabble rouser in terms of women's rights. Oh yeah. 
Uh, and equality within marriage. I mean, so many things yes. that we still talk about today. Yeah, she believed in divorce. Absolutely. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of things that I think you know she would stand before men. You know, in these in these uh, these what were the, what was it that you went to in the, the assembly? national assembly? The national yes. assembly. You know, I mean, she was for lack of a better word, ballsy, you know? And so she put herself out there and because she did that and because she was a woman putting herself out there, you know, she was punished. She faced that repercussion by losing her head. Right, right. (laughs) And the men laughed at her in the National Assembly when she suggested that women had equal rights within marriage. Yeah. Right. What a thing. Reasonable divorce laws. Mm-hmm. What a thing to think. Um, Lauren Gunderson, the playwright, has topped the list of the most produced playwrights in America for the last two years. And she said that she writes plays to give women voice and put their struggles, passions, power and wit center stage. As three women in the world of theatre, how difficult is it to find plays that do that? <laughs> I mean... Remar- remarkably <laughs> remarkably it is it is difficult but the thing that i because you know so much of what i do with greenhouse especially when i'm looking at classical like restaging or re- reworking classical work i try to actually you know keep respect to the playwright but pull out um kind of extract some of those like female stories or kind of like uh, fatten up you know some of those female characters um uh, I've done that like with Chekhov, you know, I've done that with Shakespeare, obviously. And um, there are some people who really have an issue with like, for example, women playing, you know, men's roles like in Shakespeare. I've read like so many articles with, you know, people just like damning that. And I just, I mean, I scoff at it. It's kind of hilarious because men were playing all the women's roles back, you know, when those plays like began. So I'm just like, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, you know what I mean? And, you know, also this, this play, The Revolutionists, you know, to me just speaks to what Stevens is, what Stevens is about as a an, an all-women's college, um, that we're stronger when we come together and we don't push each other down and push each other apart. We empower each other, you know? Um, we are smart, we are capable, and we're we're funny, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so it's this, this show is so funny. Um, my husband actually got a chance to come to the dress rehearsal because I didn't know the state of things. And, um, and he doesn't really like laugh out loud at things he, he kind of like keeps things in and he was laughing so much at this show he absolutely <laughs> loved it and that is also a rare thing for him he's like my toughest critic so so yeah so you know it's it's a piece it's a piece to deal with it, it is rare that I read a script in advance you know scripts are written to be performed they're not read, written to be right. read sure. but this was one of the few comedic scripts that I read that made me laugh out loud oh yeah it is hilarious I'm I, so I I really hope that Columbia and uh, Mid-Missouri gets a chance to see you all perform it. Mm-hmm. Me too. Me too. Me too. <laughs> These girls have worked so hard. I can't, I can't, I just have to like take a minute to say the tragedy of working on a piece, getting it ready, you have your dress rehearsal and then having to announce to your cast and crew yeah. that we don't get to do the run. Right. So, Well, hopefully it will run. It may run in April. I know, uh, Fiona, you graduate in May, so then you're gone. But, Julia, we have you for another year yes. here. So, <laughs> so if maybe it gets produced next year, who knows? But um, anyway, the Stevens College production of The Revolutionist is not happening this weekend, but I do <laughs> encourage you to keep an eye on that and when it does come back on the stage to go and and see it because it is fantastic. Thank you all so much for coming in. Thank you, Diana. Thank you. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPM Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be chatting with America's favorite Tupperware lady, the super pretty Alabama girl who is spilling over with Southern charm. Stay close to your radios. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. To get us all in the mood and for reasons that will become obvious momentarily, I'm going to start the second act of today's show with a little information about Tupperware. Love it or avoid it, we all know what it is and probably most of us grew up with it. The brand was named after its inventor, Earl Tupper, who founded his company back in 1938 and patented his airtight burping seal. 
But it wasn't until he teamed up with the brilliant Brownie Wise that the party plan sales technique really took off and Tupperware sales rocketed. Brownie had started her own Tupperware patio party company in 1950 and was far outselling the hardware and department stores. So Earl did the sensible thing and hired her. Brownie started Tupperware's four-day fun-packed Jubilee sales events, was fabulous at motivating her sales force and gave women in the home a chance to earn money and find a smidgen of independence in post-war America. But then Earl got jealous of her business success and in 1958, he abruptly fired her. Today, global sales for Tupperware top $2 billion, of which half a billion of that is in the United States. And I am so thrilled that the top salesperson in the United States is with us on today's show. Not only has she sold well over $1 million worth of Tupperware in the last 20 years, but she is also fabulously pretty and is bringing her Tupperware party to a stage in Jefferson City this weekend. She is America's favorite Tupperware lady, the one and only Dixie Long. That is the sweetest introduction I've ever had in my life. I want to wake up with that every morning. Just your voice just saying all those nice things. You were such an angel. I appreciate that. Stavie, you're so sweet. I can make that happen for you. I like it. I've probably sold way more than a million. You know what? It's funny. I've never actually counted how much I've sold. But I've done I've done probably several million. Because I've been in Tupperware 18 years now. Isn't that crazy? And um, I do about a quarter of a million dollars a year. So I've done I've done really good. I've sold, There's a lot of bowls and a lot of people's trailers because of me it's not just bowls it's not just bowls it's so much more than bowls as you learned last night when you saw the program you're so sweet i appreciate that (laughs) i did see it last night and it is hilarious and the friend that i was with said um well what do you mean she sells tupperware i mean no that's the whole point of the show i mean you sell tupperware at the show and she didn't realize that she thought you were just going to talk about it people are stupid and that's what i always (laughs) realized so i'm here to help uh i'm a giver Again, you I'm saying carrier. I said giver because it sounds nicer that way. So, um, no, I started selling Tupperware. Uh, well, it's, I started selling Tupperware 18 years ago, part of the conditions of my parole. And uh, my parole officer, she's so sweet. She's like, you need a job in order to get your kids back. I'm like, I don't want them. But they make you take them back. It's just such, like, that's a law we need to just march against. Um, but so I had my kids. And then they're like, and she said, you got to get some sort of a job. And I said, well, what do I want to do? And she said, um, well, you could do. Uh, well, she had this bowl that I love that she put, had a candy in on their desk and I always used to take it candy and she said well you like that bowl that's a Tupperware bowl I said shut up she said no I said that's amazing and so um, she said you should be a Tupperware lady I said I can't go into people's living rooms because of the restraining order and she said but I can get that lifted because you know she's a powerful lesbian you know how they do and so she did she got that lifted for me and I started doing Tupperware parties in people's living rooms and then I started uh, it started out just real easy and then it ended up growing and growing and growing and then a friend of mine said um, you should do uh, this on stage this is I said, and so I took it together, packaged it with my friend. Uh, we took it to New York to test out at a little theater festival up there. Um, and it did real well at that theater festival. Then it got seen by some people and then got developed off Broadway. So in 2007, I moved the show called Dixie Tupper Party, put it up on, off Broadway, it had a real great successful run there. And then that led to the tour. And then um, so I started touring in 2008 and I've been on the road ever since. I've been on the road for so long. I don't even like people anymore. I mean, it's forever, but no, it's but it's fun. Um, so one of the things about it is it is a real Tupperware party on stage. There's games and prizes and raffles. I get people up to help me and do all this stuff. But the thing that's fun is um, I, every piece of Tupperware I pick up, uh, there's a story related to it. There's something about me or my life or something funny about it. And so it keeps growing and growing. And that's, uh, you know, we start, I've, there's going to be a little play that I'll do about the Tupperware and it'll be fun. I'll do it for a couple months. And then it just grew and caught on like wildfire. We've become one of the longest running off-Broadway tours in history now. Isn't that crazy? That's amazing. And now I'm sitting here in Jefferson City. Well, Columbia, Missouri. Columbia, Missouri, but I'm doing the program in Jefferson City. (laughs) I know I've never been to Columbia. It's my first time. I wish you were doing it in Columbia, Missouri, rather than Jefferson City, Missouri. But you know that. I will come here and do it right now. I'll (laughs) sit right here. We are doing it right now. We're doing it right now. (laughs) So sweet. What is amazing during your show is the energy that you put into the performance and and the dynamic range of the performance. So you have this high energy. You're so high energy. You're selling, selling, selling. And we're also interested. You've got all these great stories. But then there are these quiet moments when you talk about your ex-husbands. Yeah. 
I've had some trials and tribulations just like everybody else does. And I, I feel I want to tell the story um, about, as you said at the beginning, what was so great about Tupperware is this post-war, it, Brownie Wise, who created the Tupperware Party, gave women who had been Rosie the Riveter this opportunity to, to go back into the workforce, to be bigger members of their family, bigger members of the community, do more things, grow a business for themselves, which was um, not really heard of back then. I mean, people had been Rosie the Riveter and then been thrown back into the kitchen. And they were like, well, wait a minute, I, w- I want to keep working. I'm a valuable person. Why do I have to just go back and just, you know, make salads all day? And so this was an opportunity that, that uh, Brownie Wise seized upon to say, we can grow a, a whole sales force of women that will champion this great product and they'll use it. They'll go into their homes and they'll see, demonstrate it in their homes and go, I can see how this works. I can see how I would use this in my home because it's already in my home being demonstrated. And that that's what I loved about it. And so I, I love how dynamic this, how the company has helped to really support and grow women for so many years and so to me I've always been a champion of that story and getting her story out because I think it's a she's a great unsung hero people don't know about Rowdy Wise but then I was like everybody's had you know I'm a, I'm a high energy person I like to giggle and all that stuff but I was like I want people to realize like I'm a real person just like you everybody has the face that they put on in front of everybody and then the things that go on in the background they don't have many so I'm like let me just remind everybody that behind all the great happiness there's always a little bit of trouble but that trouble you can either let it bring you down or you can use it as fuel for your fire to go out and do something more bigger with it and so that's what I've, I've always done it's just how I've been raised and so I thought you know the stuff that's going on in my background I'm going to just um, dust that off and use that as fuel for my fire to go out and, and sell more stuff and talk to more people and make more people smile and make people happy and I think that's been that's good so I appreciate that you say nice things about the, the dynamics of the program <laughs> I, I love and again like talking about the program I love how you incorporate Brownie Wise into the show and 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 she's very much there with you on the stage. Yeah. Was that always part of the Tupperware Party show? Well, when I when I was doing Tupperware parties in people's living rooms, I didn't talk about her. But then I sort of found out more about her. I would go to the Jubilee, the big Tupperware convention. Oh, it's like the Academy Awards of plastic. It was amazing. It's all these people shoved into a convention center for four days talking about bowls. <laughs> Come on, who wouldn't want to be at that? <laughs> and so um, it's it's really really fun. And then uh, I started hearing more about Brownie Wise, and I was like, who's this woman? Who's this woman? And people say, oh, she created the Tupperware party. But I had never heard of her. And I'm like, how, do, how is something this big and you don't know who the person is who really created it? And so I started doing research and I found out about her. And she was this single mother. I'm from Michigan, and then she, like you said, she was she had somebody given her a set of plastic bowls, and she said these are great, but this seal is different, and you know, but this is back in the day when it was glass bowls, like nobody had a plastic bowl, it was a brand new concept, and nobody had a, a, a seal that would seal it on and keep things fresh. That was so revolutionary. So she said, you you can't leave this on a store shelf. You have to demonstrate this. This is amazing. You gotta. So she took it off the shelf and she took it into people's living rooms, and she was like, look at this bowl, look how great this is, because she had been a fuller brush salesperson a door-to-door person and so she already knew the idea of going to people and saying look at this thing that I have to show you and so she just took it into people's living rooms where they would be in their homes where they would be using it and and then she was selling so much and she was like getting it from the store and selling it to other people and she created her own little like little enterprise right there and then Earl Tupper found out about it and he's like how are you selling so much and she showed him what she was doing and he said I'm gonna you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna pull it off of every store shelf I'm going to make the decision to hire you, make you vice president of Tupperware Home Party that created the home party division. So you are, you are the vice president of Tupperware Home Party Sales. I want you to basically get an army of women and deposit them all over the country and start to grow sales forces to get this product out to people. And from that, she did it so successfully. Every other direct selling company has patterned off of the Tupperware party, everybody else. So they did, somebody did a deep dive, a sociologist did a deep dive and realized that because of her, she's the single biggest job creator in history. More people have done more work because of her party plan than any other job creator in the world, which, and the fact that nobody knows her name is what's staggering to me. So I said, you know, I just want to tell her story and do a little love letter to her every night on stage. But in telling her story, it also tells the, it, it champions everybody else in the audience, hopefully. And they're like, you know what, the thing, I can do something to cause a little ripple, to, to do something bigger and to, you know, show that I'm unstoppable. And so that's what I like. I sort of engage the audience and give them their own brownie wise moment to, to rise up. So. And, and ultimately she was fired because she was kind of too successful 
successful. Um, what was the story behind that? It was very, very strange. There's a little bit, there's there's a little question as to was there a kind of relationship gone wrong between she and Earl Tupper? Some people uh, surmise that. Some people just think that, oh, she got, you know, Earl loved the product. He was not a very public person, but he loved the product, and he was afraid that she was overshadowing the product at the time. Um, Brown um, Business Week magazine came down to do a story on this emerging emerging plastics company, and they were so engaged by her that they ended up doing most of the story about her and then put her on the cover of business. She was the very first woman on the cover of Business magazine, Business Week magazine ever. And um, that sort of ruffled his feathers. And that was a bit of the start of her, her undoing because he was looking at her going, I don't want her to outshine my product. And because she would do these jubilees and she would uh, excite the sales force to sell more of his product, he was looking at it negatively going, well, but they're, they like her, they like her, they like her. And so it was this, this really weird thing. And he finally just sort of said, you know what, I'm going to, we're going to cut your legs off, which is terrible because back in the time, women were not, didn't have positions that high up. So to be vice president of a corporation, they owned all of her clothes for her appearances. They owned her car. They owned uh, like all this stuff that was hers. And they basically took it all back. And so she did not, it, it did not end well with her, unfortunately. And to, for her to have created this company, which still goes on today, so there's Brownie calling right now. <laughs> <laughs> for um, you know, it's this amazing thing. Oh gosh! Somebody's calling. <laughs> Go ahead, caller. Um, they, um, but it's been it, it. It was this weird thing. So ever there's a lot of speculation as to why it actually happened. But my my thrust in the show, my focus in the show, is to focus on the good part of her and and you know what she did because she at the end of the day was revolutionary and who she was at the core was, was this woman who believed in empowering other women and that's what I really love about her story and that's why I tell the, the part of the story that is so triumphant and love it so much and one of my the, my biggest regrets is that I never got to meet her and you know everybody says oh if you could have you know lunch with somebody living or dead who would it be and I'm I, 100% it'd be Brownie Wise because I would love her to know how successful she, what she has done has been le- led to so many other people right. having the lives they have and there are a lot of lost women in history as we said in the first segment of the show Olympia de Gouge the playwright Brownie Wise in the 20th century I mean it carries on even in in the modern day so the Jubilee parties that she started those are these are a real thing they're a real thing and they they still go on every first weekend of August every year a lot of them now will be held in Orlando world headquarters is in Kissimmee Florida outside of Orlando Um, sometimes they would move them around but but the recent years they've all been done in Orlando and they everybody comes down and they launch new products they do recognition they talk about um different uh, best practices for training and how you can do be- better parties and recruit more people and and grow your sales force and all that stuff and um and they're great they're so fun they're so empowering and it's hysterical because they'll they'll release like oh here's a new bowl you will watch people lose their damn minds they are just like no a bowl it's the funniest thing but people get so excited about it because immediately when they show a new product you your mind it's a tupperware lady gets racing like how can i use that how can i demonstrate it how can i tell other people about it that's going to save people money that's going to save people time oh my god and people literally lose their minds over it and it's so fun to be in that room and be part of that and uh and it's and the recognition that people get for what they've grown and and how much they've uh accomplished and to see these women who were like i didn't go to i didn't finish high school never went to college ended up you know I thought I was going to be like an hourly worker forever or do side jobs and now I'm making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year because I have this Tupperware business that I've created it's amazing and I, I was number one in sales um, in the country and when I got up on stage I mean they it's like the Miss Universe pageant they give you a Tara they give you roses they give me a sash and then they gave me the microphone <laughs> I was like well you know we all have choices uh, that we make and so and they were talking about like what do, you know what is it that you do what that what did you do to lead you to this success and I just remember saying the thing I love about this moment the most is that I remember sitting in the last row at my first jubilee and watching these people on stage and going this is amazing I'm so empowered I want to be on that stage I want to be recognized and I know that in this room tonight there's somebody sitting in the last row that is their very first jubilee they've just started their business and I encourage them to come up here next year to to work their butts off and get up here and uh and it was just such a, a unique it's just such a fun experience to do all that and to to see the support and the love and and you know i talk about it a little bit in the show about people
people are just screaming there. It's like all the screams are basically an echo of you matter. You've done something amazing. And uh, I just I, sometimes that's my whole point of my show is I want to remind people that they matter to go out in the world and, and stand a little bit taller and um, and know your value. Because I think so often in these this day and age, people are they don't know their value. They are just so trained by society that you only matter as much as we allow you to matter. No, no. Why does somebody get to make the decision about you or your value? That's that's up to you to do that. And um, so that's always my storytelling. I have another show, a second show that I developed uh, called Never Wear a Tube Top While Riding a Mechanical Bowl and 16 Other Things I Learned While I Was Drinking Last Thursday. And um, that's like a continuing adventure of me. But I, I, that's also a thing about... Um, what adventures did you want to have when you were a kid that you stopped yourself from having that you said oh I don't want to I shouldn't do that I should step in line like everybody else I should be like everybody else and I think all the people we look up to as adults these days all the people that we emulate that we go these are my heroes those are all the people who didn't take no for an answer who didn't stop moving forward who said I'm not going to step in line. Why do I want to be like everybody else? And they live in this world that's better than the world that everybody else lives in, and they're leading that path. And we all look to them and go, why can't I be like that? Well, you can. You just have to make the decision to be like that. That has to be your decision, and you just have to change your focus and, and do it. And so it's not easy, but is it easy being something that you never really wanted to be? Is it easy settling for things that you're not happy with? I mean, it takes the, the effort put in is literally the same amount of effort but you can you know it you know they the old saying it takes it takes fewer muscles in your face to frown than it or to smile than it does to frown so why do we spend so much effort frowning it's too much exercise you know so it's just like do the like if you're going to spend the time if you're going to get up in the morning if once your feet hit the ground focus yourself on something that's that's that betters yourself focus yourself on something that's even that you can do that's gonna that it's gonna lift the world up a little bit it is a great feel-good show i mean there's all the comedy and there's all the energy but these little talks that you have with the audience are so adorable and endearing and and everybody i think you know does walk out of there feeling lifted and it was interesting last night we're in jefferson city we're in in a church because the Capital City Productions' new home is still being finished. So we're in a church environment, which felt like it was a bit saucy of an environment <laughs> for um, for you to perform in. But And I looked out on the audience, because you have some people that sit on the stage, kind of little foils for you. And so I was sitting on the stage, and I could so I could see what you could see. I could see the audience. And I looked out, and I thought, gosh, this is a tough crowd. This looks like a tough crowd. I'm not sure that they know what's coming. Because um, they're season ticket holders. And, I, and I'd seen a little bit of the show online. So I, I, know, I knew what I was in for. Um, except it was better than I was expecting. Uh, well, I was expecting it to be awesome. And it was even better than that. Um, and, and so I thought, how are you going to engage these people? But you did engage people. And you engage people who, looking at the audience, you thought, there's no way that, that he's going to see this coming. And, and you're so good with people. Thank you. Does it ever happen that it fails you know every once in a while you'll have people that just don't want to play along you'll have people that um feel like they're overwhelmed by the whole thing because it is a high energy show and people are really uh excited about it. i i engage the audience sometimes you go to a play and you sit there in the audience and you're just a spectator but in my show you're not you're part of the party and so um i get people up from the audience to help me with different demos i get people up to play games and do stuff like that like you were part of the one of the games i won night. a piece of tupperware yes you did i'm very excited <laughs> for you um, but uh, yeah, every once in a while, people are just like they have that mentality of no, I'm, my job is to sit here and watch you. My job is not to participate, and um, it's fine. I mean, I, I sort of work around that, and my because I never want people to feel uncomfortable. I want them to have fun. But sometimes you think, well, if you're I, there are times that I've seen people like really trying to pout and trying to frown and trying to be disengaged. I'm like, why are you working so hard to not have fun? Because everybody else around you is having a ball. So what kind of point are you trying to prove? Because you're not proving it to anybody but yourself. So it's just sort of like, go with it. Have a good time. So, But the, I've been doing it, for like I said, for 12 years. So the majority of the time, it's like a handful of cases that people have fought against having fun. And I'm like, okay, well, that's your choice. That's where you want to you want to sit in that soup. Go right ahead, because we're all we're the world keeps spinning whether you're enjoying yourself or not. So come on if you want to and have fun. And and I, the amount of hilarious uh, moments I've had, the amount of just crazy experiences that I've had with people have far outweighed anybody that's ever been sour. Because I've been I've run into the funniest people and the most interesting people um like i get people up during these little raffles and i was like oh tell me about you tell me what you do for a living tell me about your you know your your family or whatever and 
I'm constantly amazed by people and what they have to, what they're doing or what they have to offer, and it just makes me giggle. And so I try to fixate on that one thing that's unique about them, and then share that with everybody else because I think, oh, let's celebrate this person that's standing up here for a while. So that's always fun for me. Well, and and that was interesting too. And obviously, you have your show, and you've you've got your lines, you've you've learned certain things. But there was this improv component to it when you had the people up on the stage and you were engaging with them. When you you never stopped being you, or the energy was still as high as it ever was. But you were completely on the fly with them. Have you studied improv at all? I have not. I just, it's just something like, I think I'm naturally curious about people and about things. And so I just talk and ask questions. And I've just learned over doing it for so many years, like a funnier way to ask a question or an interesting way to frame something so that I can go, oh, let's talk about that. Or I'll fixate on the one thing that's unique or different about something. Like I had a woman up this one time. It was so funny. Um, I get somebody up in in the raffle. Then invariably, I say, oh, tell me about you. Like, what do you do? You know, tell, when you're not at a temporary party, what do you do during the day? What's your job? What kind of thing do you do? And, uh, excuse me, and that I had a lady that said, uh, I'm a coach of the local roller derby team. And I was like, okay, stop right there. Stop right there. That is the most unique, most interesting thing I've ever heard. And we're going to stop the show because I want to have a conversation with you right now. And I just spent about 10 minutes with her just asking her questions because I'm like, no one has this job. <laughs> you know, what is this like everybody has an idea of roller derby but tell me things because I'm not going to run into many of you in my life and I run into a lot of people so I want to take this time to get to know what this is because I think this is fascinating so um yeah it's it's I mean uh, that's the fun thing for me is always being it's the show is different every night because I never know who's going to be up on stage with me who's going to be playing with me now you haven't just performed your show in America you have taken the show all over the world I have where have you been I have I've been to um, I've been to uh, London I've been to London I've been to um, Edinburgh Scotland I've been to uh, I've been to Australia I've been up to Canada a couple of times and then I've been all over the United States and then uh, two years ago my show was translated into Portuguese and it was done in Rio and Sao Paulo, Brazil, which was amazing. By somebody else. By somebody else. And I got to go, I got to fly down and see the show. And I don't speak Portuguese. I barely speak American. And uh, I, But I flew down and saw it, and it was the weirdest experience to watch somebody basically doing me. Because they weren't just doing the show, they were doing, like, me. And, um, but I didn't speak a lick of that language and I was just watching them do things and I'm like oh that's funny what are they doing everybody's laughing what are they laughing at like I'm trying to understand what they're doing because they did they made changes to the direction of the show so that like it wasn't just watching me in a different language it was like watch oh well they're in a different part of the state they're doing something different they're picking up a different part of what they're doing what does that mean but everybody's laughing and having a good time I'm like that's good that they're laughing I love that they're laughing I want to know what they're laughing at so it was very very wild to watch to have that experience but um, it was it was great i was so happy somebody the, the producer contacted me and said you know we want to we know of the show we want to bring it down to, to south america and we want to see how could we do this i'm like okay so i spent a, it was really a fun experience because i spent a long time with a translator uh to to, uh, to take the show and translate it into portuguese and then i had a friend that would translate it back so he would do the this this translator would do the portuguese version and send it back to me I had my friend do it and then read it back to me. And I'm like, oh, wait, what does this mean? Because I had to change a lot of the colloquialisms. And that was funny because certain things that we say are very, very different from things that they do. And trying to figure out how, like, they had to rename my kids because my kids don't, they don't have those names down there. So they had, and they don't, and I'm not Dixie in that production. That production, it's Doris's Tupperware Party because they don't have the name Dixie. So there's no reference for So I had to do a lot of things like that. Brownie Wise, it makes no sense because I, I talk about her, but I relate her to Rosie the Riveter in the war, and they didn't have that down there. So we had to relate Brownie Wise to a different woman that they would have a context for. So it was, things like that were so interesting to, to go down there and just like work on, like, what does that mean? What does that mean? And some of the things, that I probably can't say some of them on the radio, but some of the things that the translations back were like, oh, no, that doesn't mean what I wanted to say. So I had to change. There was one thing at the very end of the show um, which is my rallying cry, which is called Bump a Duck, which I like go out and bump a duck, like create a ripple into the world. And um, they had a thing called, they, they sent it back, and my friend translated it and said, Drown a goose. I'm like, <laughs> oh, that sounds horrible. What is that? And when he told me what that meant, it is not what I wanted it to be. And it doesn't have anything to do with drowning a goose, by the way. And I was like, oh, no, that's not how the show can end. I can't, no, can, we have to figure this out and translate. Because they were translating from the colloquialism 
into what they thought was direct language. And then they just translated it into their version of a colloquialism that had nothing to do <laughs> with what I was saying. So it was very funny. There were some weird missteps that we had in the translation. That was It was such a unique experience, but it was really, really fun. I mean, so I've been very lucky. I've been able to go and do it in different um, different countries around the world. And, and the experience is different. Like when I did in Australia, Australia, Tupperware in Australia is newer there than it is here. It didn't launch all over the world at the same time. It was in America for a long time, and then they started opening up to other territories. And so when um, Tupperware in Australia is, it has the fervor that we had in like the 60s and 70s here, it has it there now. So I would pick products up, and before I would even say a word, people would giggle and they'd start cheering because they have this newer context for it. Like, oh my God, I have that, I have that. And so it was, <laughs> it was really, really funny. It was a lot of fun to just like, oh, people would get nuts about certain things. And then I would talk about things that oh you can do this with it and they'd be like I don't we don't have that food what is that food? so because even the foods and the things mm. that people eat are different so it's I had to like translate different things even in my own show to be like oh and like when I did played London I talk about um, having a Schlitz malt liquor beer. Well, they don't have that over there, but they have something called Tesco Value Beer, which is like the rot gut of beer. And so I had to learn all these little things, like what would I, what would this be, what would this be, and like it put those in the show. So it's really funny doing it in different um, different countries because you just learn all this different stuff about this the society and what they do. Well, everybody listening has a chance to see it here in their own locality in Jefferson City for the next two nights and a matinee tomorrow. My second night guest today has been the super pretty Dixie Longgate, the most prolific and best-loved Tupperware lady in America. <laughs> Dixie will be performing her Tupperware party for Capital City Productions tonight and tomorrow at 7.30. Plus, it is a 1pm matinee tomorrow as well. As Capital City Productions are still putting the finishing touches to their new home, Dixie will be performing at the Woodcrest Chapel at the Capitol Mall. Tickets are still available and you can get them online at capitalcityproductions.org or by calling the ticket line at 573-681-9612. Thank you so much, Dixie. Thank you for having me. I what a pleasure. That. You make me all tingly in my <laughs> Jesus place. <laughs> I'll send you a little recording of the show so you can listen to it every morning. Oh, you just made my life better. I'm a giver. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Speaking of the Arts, and my name is Diana Mox. And as usual, we'll end the show with a look at some of the events that are not coming up over the next few days in and around Colombia. Gosh, it's so sad, but I'm so I'm so proud of the arts in Colombia for being ahead of the curve and for keeping people safe. It's tough to get rid of the arts. It's what a lot of us get up for every morning and uh, it uh, defines who we are as people. But during these times, a lot of venues are responding to the need for social distancing and the imperative of keeping us all healthy so we can enjoy events once things have cleared. So I'm going to give you a list of things that are on and things that are cancelled, but do check with each venue if it is listed as being on because this is a rapidly changing situation. The university's Rheinsberger Theatre votes for women is cancelled with no rescheduled date planned. At the Stevens College Warehouse Theatre, the revolutionists, who we had on the first act of today's show, that has been postponed until further notice, but they do hope that will go ahead at some point. This weekend's annual Art in Bloom show at the Museum of Art and Archaeology um, has also been cancelled. At Talking Horse Theatre, the sixth annual Strange New Worlds is on stage tonight, uh, one night only. It's an evening of music, poetry, spoken word and art that's um, devised by Audra Sergal and Robin Anderson. And that starts at 7.30 and tickets are $15. As you heard just now in Jefferson City, Capital City Productions is hosting the off-Broadway hit Dixie's Tupperware Party. Showtime is 7pm tonight and tomorrow, plus it is a 1pm matinee tomorrow and tickets for that show are $30. Tonight at the Blue Note, um, I believe the Blue Note are carrying on with performances currently. The K Brothers have their St. Paddy's Bash at 8pm. At Rose Music Hall, the Summer Camp Music Festival is in town, searching for the best of mid-Missouri talent. Tonight's performances include Blake Blake Gardner and the Farmers, Crooked Fix, Cat Daddy's Funky Fuzz Bunker Band and Spilly Nelson. The evening starts at 9pm. And I don't know about this one, country music star Jason Aldean may be playing Mizzou Arena tonight. I hadn't seen that it had been cancelled last time I looked, but check with the venue. Tomorrow evening's University Concert Series and Show Me Opera's production of the Gilbert and Sullivan comic opera, The Pirates of Penzance, is cancelled. At Talking Horse Theatre, the Stable Boys long-form improv troupe have postponed their Saturday night show with a tentative re- 
rescheduled date of May the 9th. All State Historical Society March events have been cancelled, including this weekend's exhibition of Missouri Women, Suffrage to Statecraft. I do believe right now at the Fink Theatre in California, jazz vocalist Erin Bode will be singing tomorrow night at 7pm. Monday evening, the Columbia Art League's planned patrons party fundraiser is postponed until further notice. At Jesse Hall, the University Concert Series presentation of the Irish Dancing Extravaganza Rhythm of the Dance is cancelled, as are all University Concert Series events through the end of March. Tuesday evening at Rose Music Hall, going ahead right now, Black Joe Lewis and the Honey Bears are on stage with Loose Loose at 8pm. Tickets are $15. Um, oh, gosh. Um, I think right now, but may not happen, the 2020 Roots and Blues lineup is going to be revealed at a free party at the Blue Note at 5 p.m. next Thursday. That feels like 10 years away from now. Comedian Ron Tate Salad White will not be at Jesse Hall on Thursday night, but they're University Concert Series hoping to reschedule his visit for the fall. At the Daniel Boone Regional Library, award-winning singer-songwriter guitarist Ken Gaines is playing a free concert in the Friends Room at 7. That is currently still showing as happening. In Jefferson City, Scene 1 Theatre opens the Nick Payne play Constellations, a play about love science, quantum theory and the infinite possibility of heartbreak and hope. That show has a two-week run. It is currently still showing as happening. The We Always Swing Jazz Series has cancelled their Messenger Legacy Band, the Art Blakey Centennial Celebration next Thursday, and Columbia College's Visual Arts and Music Department's presentation of the classic musical Oliver. Uh, they are discussing right now whether that will go ahead at the Launa Auditorium. In addition, all events at the George Caleb Bingham Gallery on campus have been cancelled, and Tripp's Children's Theatre has cancelled their spring Saturday morning classes and spring dance vocal classes. Gosh, that's a sad list to read compared to what we usually read. But bravo to all those events who are keeping us all safe. Arts will live on in our hearts during these difficult times. And looking at the silver lining, there'll be so many great arts events written about this period. So we can only hope for that. Thank you so much for listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia, with me, Diana Moxham, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We will be back next week... But we won't probably have live guests in the studio. We may be doing telephone interviews, but we're going to... No dead guests. No. <laughs> Thank you, Mike, for that little interruption there. But yes, no, they, won't, they, they will be on the phone rather than in the studio. Thank you very much. Um, so we'll have more arts chat and sneaky peeks behind the Mid-Missouri Arts Curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia.